0: Welcome to the ACC Podcast. My name's Tyler Birch. I'm a minister here at Anacortes Christian Church. We hope our weekly messages are a resource to help you grow spiritually, and that they would bring you closer with God and his son, Jesus. If you want more info about ACC, find us on Facebook, or check out our website, anacorteschristian.church. And so, I'm gonna read from Hebrews six, verse 11 through 20, and if you have a Bible you can follow along, otherwise it should be on the screen. Hebrews 6, 11. and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And I want you to, I'm just going to pause, I want you to hear like the author's tone here. He's speaking personally. Here to us, he has a desire for us. Have you ever um, had a desire for someone that you care about to get something, like to get a hold of an idea, to catch the excitement that you have about something? Maybe you've experienced some life-altering um, event or truth, and you're trying to convey that, and you're like, "I really want you to catch on to this," and in the sense. That's the sense we get here because when he says we desire that you, that word for desire, it's a strong word. It's the word for crave or lust. Okay, we crave for you to show the same earnestness or diligence so that you get your mind around the full assurance. And the, a synonym for that, I looked it up in Greek, full assurance is, is like to have the big picture, the, the full picture, the complete picture, the, the total condition of your hope until the end so that you won't be sluggish. And, and it's like he's saying, our, our, in other words, our heart's passion for you is that you would never stop digging, never stop uncovering the multi-layered depth and beauty of the hope that you have in Jesus Christ, that you'd keep pursuing that for your entire life, okay? It doesn't stop at some point. That pursuit keeps growing. There's always more until you die, okay? Or until Jesus returns. And he's passionate for us that we would have that passion, that diligence, that pursuit to keep knowing that hope. Why? Because there's a risk. Because we're always putting our hope in something, okay? We're always moving our life in a trajectory towards something that we hope in no matter what. And he's saying there are hopes out there that are shallow. They're, they're flaky anchors. They're lifeboats that we put our trust in. But they get beat up in the, in the surf of the storms of life. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to talk about that a little bit. We have an anchor in our hope in Jesus Christ. The more we know what that is, the more we pursue it, the more we'll cling to it and not be taken astray. And so let's continue reading verse 13 says, and we, we just finished talking about uh, becoming imitators of those who have received that promise, at least in part. And so now he's going to give an example Abraham. He says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he, Abraham, obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath is given as confirmation, Uh, an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed it with an oath, so that By two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. This hope we have as an anchor for the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. We'll talk a little bit more about Melchizedek next week because the whole next section is about this. But uh, let's stop and I just want to pray one more time um, just that God's word would kind of have its way with us. So, Father, we just pray that very thing. We ask right now that your word would unveil the hope that we have in you. And give us a strong assurance that we could remain steadfast and that you are holding us in the the grip of your hand. We have this anchor, Lord. I pray that we'd hold on to that anchor. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Our hope is an anchor. I don't know if you've ever um, been fishing, like commercial fishing, where you've had to rely on an anchor. Um, I got to fish in Alaska a few years with my parents. I think we've got some pictures up there pretty soon, hopefully, uh, on that boat, the Susie Q. It was actually named after my aunt's dog. Um, (laughs) But uh, so uh, that's a boat at anchor right there. And the thing about an anchor is uh, when you set anchor, you want to find, after a long day of fishing, you want to sleep on the boat, you want to find a sheltered place, a bay that is sheltered from the wind to set an anchor. And so that's another picture of other boats Sheltered in a bay, setting in for the night. Uh, one such night, I remember that during the night, the wind shifted directions on us. And uh, you, you feel it, okay? Because there's, I mean, there's all these cables and things on the boat, so you hear the wind just start whistling, and pretty soon you feel the boat start turning, and, and pretty in and a boat, I mean, it's like a sail, okay? The wind, it pulls hard on a boat. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, of trying to use a line to pull a boat against the wind. It's, it's, it's a powerful force. And so pretty soon you feel that anchor line get tight. And uh, you're trying to sleep, okay? You're, you've you got precious few hours to sleep because you're going to get up early and fish. You're trying to sleep at night, and you're listening to that wind, and then you're listening, and you hear like this, you know, and you're going, is that the chain bouncing on the bottom? Is it the anchor dragging? It's the middle of the night. It's dark. I don't want to get out of my bunk, but I'm kind of afraid, and you really don't sleep very good. In fact, my parents, they went out one year in the middle of December, and this icy storm, kind of this storm blew up at night. And same thing happened. And my dad got out of his bunk at like two in the morning and looked out and they were like five or 10 feet away from the shore. And it was a quick emergency situation. They were very lucky they got, a, got away without getting bashed up on the shore. But the point is your hope is only as strong as your anchor, okay? Your hope is not dependent on your willpower or, you know, uh, your hope of whether or not it's going to hold necessarily even. It's in the anchor, it's whether or not the anchor's going to hold. That's, just, that's what our hope is in. And we have this imperative here to not be sluggish, but to diligently pursue a complete understanding of our hope as an anchor, the full meal deal until the end. And so in this passage, we want to break down what is that hope. And so just from this passage, I'm going to draw out four um, Four categories, I guess. One, the substance of our hope. Two, the strength of our hope. Three, the cost of our hope. And four, how we can take hold of it. Okay, so the substance, the strength, the cost, and taking hold of our hope. So first, the substance of our hope. What are we actually hoping in anyway? The author points to Abraham as one that we should imitate, who inherited, at least in part, God's promise. It says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he, Abraham, obtained the promise. Abraham had patiently waited. This quote comes from Genesis 22, which is the very end of Abraham's story, the story where God tested Abraham by asking him to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Isaac was the object, the substance of the realization of this hope that God had promised to him, Back in chapter 12, at the very beginning, when he said, I want you to leave your homeland, I want you to leave your family, I want you to leave everything and go to a land that I will show you and I will bless you. I will make you a blessing. I will make you a great nation and your nation are going to be as numerous as the sand on the seashore, the stars in the heavens. I'm kind of combining different iterations of this promise. And all of the nations on the earth are going to be blessed through you. And so Abraham had to wait as he followed God to see God bring about the fulfillment of this promise through a son named Isaac. He had to trust. He had to persevere in faith, even though he knew that he and his wife were beyond the age of childbearing. His wife was barren in the first place. And nothing seemed to be happening for 25 years. And he still, the challenge was to trust that God would fulfill this promise. Sometimes Abraham faltered in his faith. Sometimes he was weak and sometimes he was pretty strong. He didn't always trust God. He was very human and sometimes he took matters into his own hands. And when he finally did have a son and it looked like God had finally followed through on this promise, the unthinkable happens. God asks Abraham to give up that very son as a sacrifice to God. And it was a test. In whom or what do you place your hope? Is it in the gift or the one who can provide the gift? Is your hope in your circumstance or the one who is over all circumstances? Is God trustworthy? The substance of Abraham's hope was God himself at least the source behind it. And we get a window into this later in Hebrews chapter 11: 17. he says, "By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, "Through Isaac shall your offspring be named." Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. God interrupted him, made him stop, provided a a sacrifice instead of Isaac, but he passed that particular test. Abraham believed that somehow, no matter what, God would fulfill this promise, even if he did lose his son, upon whom this promise rested. God would make a way, even if that meant resurrecting Isaac from death. The substance of Abraham's hope was not only the promise, but in the source of the promise. But what is the substance of this promise anyway? God says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. What does that have to do with us? Is it simply about creating one nation through one man? And to answer that question... We have to realize that the language of that promise harkens back to Genesis as a way of saying that what God is promising is to go about a plan that is going to restore every human being to the condition that we were in before the fall. What we were intended to be. What we were intended to experience in the garden. Okay, so what is that? For one, it's dominion. When he says, I will bless you and multiply you, it's quoting Genesis 1 where God created man in his own image, male and female, and it says God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over everything God had made. The the plants, the, the beasts, everything. So the promise implies that one, God's people would be given authority over all things in God's creation under God's authority. And that we'd be actually capable of handling that responsibility, able to run the world right. And that means, as Romans 4 puts it, the substance of this promise is all things are yours. What things? All things. Like all things, period, are to be yours to be experienced by you fully if you're an heir of this promise. So the promise is dominion, authority over all things. Two, it's abundance. The language of the promise, both in Greek and Hebrew, is actually instead of I will surely bless you, it's in blessing I will bless you, and in multiplying I will multiply you. It's kind of a hyperlink back to Genesis 2 where God tells Abraham that he can eat of any tree in the garden and he says, in feasting, you shall feast. That's the Hebrew phrase for it. In feasting, you shall feast. Imagine living in a world where everyone had enough. Imagine living in a world where you never had to worry about where your meal was going to come from or what it was going to take to provide You still work the ground, but it always produces. There's always enough. There's never anxiety. There's never worry. No one is ever left wanting. They never have to feel like they have to take matters into their own hands at the expense of someone else. And in fact, that is the reality of God's created world. There is more than enough for everyone. The only reason we don't always have enough is because we don't actually believe that. We believe that we have to take matters into our own hands, look out for number one, often at the expense of someone else. So, the substance of this promise is a return to a condition of abundance where everyone experiences enough and never has any wants. Three... Sabbath rest. It says, For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath is given as confirmation, as an end of every dispute. This was kind of troubling to me as I was reading this on the surface level. How does an oath in and of itself end a dispute? Wouldn't you say that the dispute's over when you fulfill the oath? How is this great encouragement for us to put our trust in this hope Because God made an oath. Um, So here's a little interesting bit that you don't get in the English language. Um, The word oath in Hebrew has a a theme attached to it. In fact, there's, there's one Hebrew word that has like three variations. And they are basically the same three Hebrew letters. And the three words are Sabbath or rest, seven, and oath. They're all the same letters in Hebrew. And they're all connected thematically together. Seven, completeness. Sabbath, rest. And oath. Why in the world is that? And I looked up, I did some research on this. The word oath, shevuah is closely related to the number seven, shavah, And also Shabbat, Sabbath, that's rest. So seven, yeah. It's like a seven-day week where you set out on your work at the beginning of a week and it all culminates in resting and completion on the seventh day, ultimately in God's completed work. And in the same way, an oath is like the beginning setting out of that week and the completion of that oath is the bringing about of rest. So you have two parties who have a difference or they're Making a deal together, the oath is to bring about rest between those two parties. Okay? So, this is the stuff of our oath. It's, it's, a, it's a Sabbath rest. Hebrews 4, going back a couple chapters, says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. God wants to bring about a condition of rest between him and his people. Okay, that's what this oath is about. So that was the substance of our hope. Abundance, dominion, Sabbath rest. The strength of our hope. How strong is this anchor? Verse 13 says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. And verse 16 says, For men swear by one greater than themselves. In other words, Your promise is only as good as the thing you are relying upon to provide it. As I'm reading this, I'm thinking, now, are you trying to tell me that I should have encouragement and believe just because God made a promise and said, I promise by myself, therefore you can believe it? Well, that might not be enough for me. Well, why is that? Well, that's because if I say that, um, it doesn't hold a lot of water, right? That doesn't mean I'm not going to break my promise. But why is that different with God? You know, if I'm going to build a house um, and I want to take out a loan to build that house, the bank isn't going to just take me at my word. They want some information. First of all, they want to know what is the guarantor or how am I going to provide to be able to pay off this loan? They want to know what my income level is. They want to know about my employer. Okay? They're also going to want to know my credit score. They're going to want to know my track record. Am I historically shown to be able to be faithful to fulfill this debt? And they're going to want a down payment. So in a sense, I'm saying, I swear by my employer and my track record and this down payment as a sign of my goodwill that I will successfully pay you back. What God has done is a little different But you'll start to see the picture. He has promised to create a people for himself. The substance of our hope, dominion, endurance, rest. He's going to build a house, okay, a household for himself. Back in chapter 3, he said, But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house. And we are that house. We are his house. If indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope, there's our word, in which we glory. Okay, we're that house that God wants to build, and God makes a promise, an oath, a covenant. Who does God swear by? He swears by himself. Now, why is that strong encouragement for us, as verse 18 says? Because there is no one greater by whom to swear. God is the provider and the creator of all things, so he is the guarantor, okay? Okay? the employer who creates the means to build the house. And he is God. He has the highest track record, okay, the credit score. Which means that if God is going to lie, if God is going to break this promise, and this is the important part, if God is going to break this promise, then he will be undermining his entire credibility, his infallibility, He will be forfeiting his glory, his competence to fulfill what he has said he would fulfill, all of it. In essence, God would be undoing himself if he doesn't fulfill this promise. Okay, So that should be great encouragement for us. For God to break this promise to you is to undermine his very being. God will fulfill his promise to us, not just for us. And this is the encouraging part because it doesn't just rest on us. It doesn't rest on you and your performance. And how, however well you hold up this covenant, it rests on the sake of his glory and his name. He is not going to undermine himself. 2 Timothy 2, 11-13 says, Here is a trustworthy saying, If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. There's the substance of our hope that we talked about, right? If we disown him, he will also disown us. That's what Mark talked about last week, okay? It's not a matter of, oh, have I blown it this week? Have I gone too far? If you're asking that question, then you're probably still okay. But there is a danger because continued sluggishness and neglect can lead to a place where we turn our backs and we disown God. We disown the hope that we have in Him. If we disown Him, He will also disown us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot disown Himself. In other words, whatever you do, God's still going to do what He's going to do. Because to not do so would be to disown himself. He is going to fulfill this promise for those who put their hope in him, in that anchor. That's the strength of your hope. Okay? Thirdly, the cost of our hope. We talked about the substance of our hope. It's infinitely valuable. And I'll just pause like, who else can offer that? Where else do you find that? You know, we've talked about the strength of our hope. It rests on God. But what does it cost? What's the cost of our hope? What does it take to receive this? And the answer is everything and nothing. Our passage said an oath is given as confirmation. Uh, An oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute, which results in rest, as we said. If I have a dispute with someone, What does it cost to come to a position of rest? It usually takes compromise, right? When you talk about marriage and communication and you have to learn how to compromise, right? We're we're trying to tell our kids all the time, you guys have to compromise. Stop just using violence, you know? you, You guys need to compromise with each other. But in order for there to be compromise, something has to die, right? Both parties typically have to give up something. But what if no amount of compromise can successfully bring about rest? Or what if one party is unwilling or unable to relinquish what it takes for rest to be possible? My strong will. You know, my my selfish desires. In such a case, that person or party themselves would have to be removed or die. In order for rest to even be possible the reality is we have a dispute with God we have an unsettled debt Romans 3 says for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in my sinful condition I could never be worthy of the promise that God offers I can never be capable of handling it. I am too selfish. And in my sin, I have fallen short of God's glory. The wages of sin is death. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. What does that mean that our hope has entered through the veil? It's a picture of the the tabernacle or the temple. And it's talking about coming into God's room, his presence, the most holy place. And there's a separation there. There's a veil. That throne, that, that tabernacle or temple, was a copy of the heavenly temple. And he's saying that Jesus, our hope, has gone through that veil. But what did it take for Jesus to go through that veil? Typically, only a high priest could go through, and only once a year, and only on the Day of Atonement, when sacrifices were made for the sins Of the people okay so now Jesus our high priest has entered through the veil you can only enter when there's been a sacrifice he's entered through the veil of the heavenly temple because he himself on our behalf became that sacrifice but just as with Abraham's gift Isaac The one and only son whom he loved. The promise he had patiently waited for all these years. years, Isaac, as he carried that wood on his back up the mountain to be sacrificed. So too now God's one and only son would carry a wooden cross up Calvary's mountain. And As John Lennox put it in the talk, If that's God up there on that cross, what's he doing there? Jesus was the perfect gift of this promise. He lived the life that we should have lived and he died the death that we should have died so that he could pass through the veil as a forerunner, it says, on our behalf, meaning he makes a way for us to come through too. You see, the thing that is so powerful about this hope is not simply the substance of it, dominion, abundance, rest, and it's not simply the strength of it, the fact that it rests on God's ability and His glory for His own name's sake and not us based on His oath and His promise. No, the thing that really gets to the heart of it is what He was willing to pay to have you. There is no debt, there's no price that He did not pay to include you. So that just as God said to Abraham, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. Now because of Jesus, we can say, God, because you have not withheld from me, your son, your only begotten son, but gave him as a sacrifice for us all, I can surely trust you and follow you with faith and patience. With Isaac, God provided a substitute sacrifice. For us, he became our substitute sacrifice. Christ himself is our down payment, and he settled the debt. And it costs us nothing because he paid everything. That's the cost. When I get a hold of that, that picture, my hope grows. It, it reveals layers, and I... I begin to be wooed into taking hold of this anchor. So taking hold of our anchor, that was our that was the cost of our hope. Now the taking hold of It says, We who have taken refuge, so that we would who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. When you feel tossed about by life's storms, or like you're taking refuge, do you ever doubt God's love? Do you ever doubt his promises? I, knew, I know I do. I mean, honestly, I can preach about this and then wrestle with it at the same time. Um... It's just a constant battle. The author's saying in those times, dig in, you know, don't, don't just tell yourself, well, God made a promise. So I should have hope and I should, I should have great encouragement. So there, no, no. What does it mean that God made a promise? What does it mean that he can't undo this promise? That to undo it would be to undo it himself. How is that great encouragement? Do some research, you know, dig in to this hope, to this promise. The author is saying, in those times, this is when we have to take hold and go deeper. And this image of an anchor is powerful for these people who were taking refuge. June Hunt, in her little book on hope, wrote, Many etchings of anchors were discovered in the catacombs of Rome, where Christians held their meetings in hiding, threatened with death because of their faith, these committed Christians use the anchor as a disguised cross and as a marker to guide the way to their secret meetings. Located beneath the ancient city, 600 miles of these tomb-like burial chambers served as a place of refuge during perilous times of persecution. Thus, the anchor, found even on some tombstones today, has become the symbol of guaranteed hope For the eternal security of true Christians. We still live in a broken world. Even though as Tyler said earlier. We're pretty comfortable for the most part. But do we put our hope in our comforts? The challenge is not to shake. Or or trade. This unshakable hope. For comfort. But persevere. And we can do that if we know what that hope is. For instance, I have some friends, I have some family, maybe you've done this, Tyler and Shannon. Uh, when they bought a piece of property to build a house on, in order to do that, they had to sell their current house and live in a trailer for a year or two. They had to sacrifice, okay? Why would they do that? Because their hope is not in the current house, but in the one to come. If they can hold on to the assurance of what is coming, and there's no crazy surprises like a sinkhole or a, you know, something like that, then they can put up with living in lesser conditions for a while. In closing, I want to share a final story from Acts 27 as we move into communion. This story is the only other time in the New Testament where the word anchor is used. And I think there's a connection. Paul is on board a ship headed for Rome, but they sail at the wrong time of year and they end up in a major storm that lasts for weeks. They have to jettison their cargo. They lose all navigating equipment. Their sun, moon, and stars are gone. They can't see anything. They have to throw their lines under the boat to try to hold it together. It's dark. They're at the mercy of being tossed about by the storm. For many days, and they have lost all hope of being saved. I've put up with that for a few hours, and that's enough. For days, this is misery. At midnight on the 14th day, they realize they're getting close to the shore of some island. They could hear the breakers and so on, and they're, they're setting soundings with rope and so on. So they set down four anchors. Now, some of the men pretending to set forward anchors were trying to let down the lifeboat and escape. And it says in verse 31 that Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men remain with the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. And until the day was about to come, until dawn was about to approach, Paul was urging them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day. You have waited anxiously and you have continued without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food for this is necessary for your preservation. And that word there is the exact same word as salvation. soteria. For not a hair from your head will be lost. And after he had said these things, he took bread and he gave thanks to God in front of them all. And after breaking it, he began to eat. So they were all encouraged and partook of food themselves. What is your anchor? What is your lifeboat? See, a lifeboat is deceptive. It's not an anchor at all. It's just a smaller version of what you already have. It won't survive the storm when you go through the breakers. They had to put all their trust in the anchors. Notice the language of the story. It seems a bit strange. It says he took bread, gave thanks, broke it. That's like code word for communion. That, that always means communion, the Lord's Supper. What's the author Luke doing here? And when Saul encourages them to eat, says, "This is for your preservation, your salvation." Just like our Hebrews passage, the people are seeking refuge. They're encouraged to put their hope in the strength of their anchor, not the lifeboat. And Paul leads them into this code word communion ritual in the middle of a storm. What in the world is that all about? But it parallels our text, which is speaking of our hope passing through the veil Communion represents our coming into God's holy presence through the veil by the body and blood of Jesus, which is what that bread represents. And the story ends at daybreak. They saw the beach. They saw that it was safe to let the boat run aground. They cut loose their anchors and left them there and emerged on the shore unharmed. Romans 8, 25 says... For in hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we await it eagerly with patient endurance. Someday, our hope will be seen and realized, and we won't need an anchor anymore. But in the meantime, we are preserved by the constant reminder of our hope. Its substance, its strength, what it cost him to provide it for you. And we take hold of it again. So, maybe a good question as we head into communion time today would be Am I living my life for lesser hopes? What are the anchors that I'm resting in? What are my lifeboats? My idols? And maybe a good way to reveal that would be to ask a question. If I only had fill in the blank, then I would be fulfilled. Then I would be okay. Then I'd be happy. Have you ever told yourself that? Have you ever felt that? What do you feel that way about? If I could only have this, then we'd be okay. Then we'd be safe and secure. Then we'd have what we want and be fulfilled. Or maybe it's the opposite side of that question. Maybe it's, today in my life, I feel most anxious about fill in the blank. Or the thing I fear the most. Because those questions will reveal those lifeboats that we have to cut away. It's okay to have hopes in this life, but what do we really rest our security in and our joy in? We still live in a broken world. We're going to experience pain and suffering and tribulation. So ask yourself that question. And maybe the next time you feel those things, that longing or that anxiety, that frustration, pray to God that He would help you use that time to reveal the things that we are putting our hopes in where they shouldn't be. And lastly, pray. Pray not only for our circumstances, okay? It's okay to pray that God would change our circumstances. But I feel like most often that's where we stop. If that's where Abraham had stopped, he would not have passed the test. He would not have been obedient to God. Sometimes the only thing we pray for is that God would change our circumstances. Hey, if we hadn't... I mean, I think it's great that we prayed. There was uh, the... Doctors with Don Kelly were doing all kinds of tests of stimuli to see if his brain was reacting to fear and whatnot. They were getting nothing. And people were praying hard all over the place. And I believe God changed the circumstance. But that's not always the case. And so, are we willing to pray not just for the circumstance, but that in every circumstance, We would have our hope anchored in the right place. Hold fast to your... Just a reminder that we love you and God loves you and you always have a place here at ACC. We are now back on our standard fall schedule with two services, one at 8.15 and another at 10 a.m. We hope to see you soon.